Well, good afternoon. Good morning, as the case may be, wherever you're, wherever you are joining us from over the world. Um, I'm Professor Simon Jackman, the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre, and um, be introducing today's webinar, which is a globe-spanning uh, group of participants who I'll introduce shortly as well as their topic. But let me begin by acknowledging that the US Study Centre here at the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, so we are a United States Study Centre based in Australia, but in a world in which global challenges are, national security challenges are, are proliferating and, and the vectors of transmission do not respect uh, traditional things like uh, distance. Um, and um, Australia's relationship with, with NATO um, is the topic of, of, or part of what we'll be discussing today, but in particular, um, an element of it, um, and that is how both NATO and Australia uh, are, are dealing uh, with this information and its implications uh, uh, for national security. Clearly, a, a big topic of focus is sort of the resurgence of interest in the Indo-Pacific as perhaps, you know, one of the most interesting arenas of geostrategic competition in the world today. But that is obviously of immense relevance to Australia, the United States, and hence to us as a US study center. But something that increasingly is on the agenda of policymakers in Europe and, and NATO and, and sort of a retasking of, of the of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's uh, uh, brief, uh, both regionally, but also, as I said in the opening sentence or two there, about the nature of the challenges, the fact that they don't respect those traditional demarcations of the world into, into regions. Um, that's going to be the topic that um, our webinar guests uh, pursue over the next uh, 50 odd minutes or so. And we're delighted uh, to be joined today um, by Ambassador Baba Brazay, who was appointed Assistant Secretary General for Public Diplomacy um, at NATO uh, in May of 2020. And, and she advises in that role, the Secretary General of NATO on all issues in her remit, the public diplomacy brief, um, but oversees the coordination of strategic communications across all NATO civilian and military bodies. Um, she also directs the public diplomacy division in that, in that role, which plays a key role in conveying NATO's strategic and political messages to opinion leaders and to the public globally. And so this topic of disinformation is clearly front and center um, for the public diplomacy arm of NATO as it is for officials charged with public diplomacy, certainly in the Australian diplomatic corps and, and the United States and, and other allies. Um, to join the ambassador in today's conversation, um, we're, we're joined by uh, Jennifer Hunt. And Jen um, is a lecturer in security studies at Macquarie University, and of course, is a non-resident fellow here at the center and joins us from just across the way in Sydney or perhaps down in Canberra. I'm not quite sure where you are today, Jen, physically, <laughs> but thank you for being with us. Jen, of course, has, has published on comparative national security policy on cyber, on energy, uh, with respect to the United States, Australia, and, and the Gulf states. Uh, Jen has served as a delegate at the, you know, the primo security forum, the Shangri-La Security Dialogue, 
and has been an attendee at the World Economic Forum in Abu Dhabi. And to moderate today's events uh, is our own Dr. Garana Grigic, who is a joint appointment, a secondee from the Department of Government and International Relations here at the university with us here as a secondee at the United States Study Center, um, a uh, prolific researcher and a very popular uh, teacher here at the university, whom we are missing dearly because Garana uh, is this, uh, for part of this year at least, is, is spending um, a good chunk of 2021 um, at the NATO Defence College in Rome. So today truly is a global uh, webinar spanning uh, NATO, spanning uh, in Brussels, uh, spanning uh, Rome and, and, and either Sydney or Canberra. But um, with that, I will get out of the way and hand over to Grana uh, thank you for joining us. It's early there, I imagine, Garana, um, but um, great to see you again and great for um, putting uh, this webinar together for us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Simon, and uh, good morning or good afternoon or maybe even good evening to all of you who have joined us to the first of the USSC NATO Expert Talk series, where we'll be discussing the global challenge, uh, building resilient citizens in an age of disinformation. So before we just get started, a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, your microphone, camera, and chat functions have all been disabled so that our speakers are not interrupted. But we do encourage you, and we want to make this a two-way conversation. So if you want to uh, pose any questions as we go uh, along the way, please uh, use the Q&A function that is at the bottom of your screens. You can ask them uh, questions there, and we'll address them towards the end of the discussion today. Uh, apart from being streamed live, the discussion is being recorded for later access on our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. So now on to the topic, uh, and I'll be very brief. The coronavirus pandemic that we are all living through, uh, and some are experiencing the effects uh, more than, and than others. I think my colleagues in Australia are very uh, safe and, and sound now, um, us in Europe, maybe less so, but hopefully getting to better days. It has been accompanied by what has been referred to as an infodemic. Uh, according to the World Health Organization. So our conversation could not be more timely. Yet phenomena such as misinformation, disinformation, and hoaxes are nothing new. Uh, though many are just beginning to pay attention to these problems, they, they date back to the very grounds actually I find myself on. So just indulge me for a second with a historical episode where around 31 BC, Octavian, a Roman military official, launched a smear campaign against his political enemy, Mark Antony. This effort used, as one writer put it, short, sharp tweets, um, almost tweet-like slogans, sorry, written on coins. And his campaign was built around the point that Antony was a soldier gone array, a philander, a womanizer, a drunk, not fit to hold the office. And it worked. Octavian, not Antony, became the first Roman emperor, taking the name Augustus Caesar. So there you go. While the phenomena might not be new, the urgency of addressing them um, are pretty uh, much uh, as, as relevant as ever. After all, the democratic regimes um, 
we live in um, are predicated on consent of the governed. And in an ideal world, that consent would be given on the basis of uh, information that is accurate. And what's more, if democracies are to survive and to even thrive, there needs to be some sort of basic common uh, agreement over what's true and what isn't. So to look into how to deal with this issue that isn't necessarily all that new, but um, very much affects governments and it's definitely not under just government's uh, control to address uh, and one that poses challenges and even threats to the very functioning of the societies uh, we find ourselves in. It is my great honor and pleasure to uh, be moderating this all-female panel um, and to find out what the lessons uh, are that we can learn from both transatlantic and Australian uh, experience. So I will yield the floor here and invite Ambassador Braje uh, to deliver first uh, some opening remarks. We'll go to Dr. Jennifer Hunt afterwards and then uh, get, get into some of that Q&A. Thank you. Good morning, Gorana, and thank you very much uh, to the United States Studies Center at Sydney. Uh, at the University of Sydney for co-organizing this event with us. We look forward to further discussions and to, to the topics that are of interest to both sides, NATO and Australia and our partners all across the world. And why Australia? Because Australia is one of NATO's most active and closest partners and we highly value our cooperation. Our relations are underpinned by shared values, while the context of our partnership, of course, is one of increased global competition, just as Professor said. We do face new defense and security challenges, uh, all democracies do, and we face new threats uh, such as cyber attack, disinformation, disruptive technologies, uh, providing both challenges but also opportunities, but also the weakening of international rules-based system. And these type of threats, just as Professor said, they don't respect borders or territories. We are also seeing state and non-state actors that take steps to undermine these shared values and actually attack our democratic institutions and undermine them. So in this context, uh, NATO allies and Australia share fundamental interest in ensuring that we work hard to protect our dem democratic ideals and principles. Uh, we do that on an everyday basis. We have a very close practical cooperation, regular dialogue, sharing information, and that is both on bilateral basis but also here at NATO uh, through, through, through direct communication channels with our Australian and other partners. Now on the theme of today's discussion, uh, there are two key words, resilience and countering disinformation. So what is this mythical resilience and why NATO cares about it and what do we understand with it. A bit of the context and background, uh, uh, the Article 3 of the Washington Treaty, so since the very exception of the, of the alliance, uh, it recognizes allies' obligation to have a capacity to resist and defend. Thus, the civil dimension has always been essential to our defense and security thinking also planning and posture. Uh, NATO has used different words for resilience, but broadly it is defined as the ability to absorb and recover from shock, surprise or stress. 
Thus, it is both a national responsibility and essential collective obligation of allies. Currently, uh, the, the resilience uh, agenda already since 2016 Warsaw summit has become even more prominent and allies have agreed to implement minimum resilience standards for critical infrastructure, including ports and airports, supplies of fuel, food, medical equipment, telecommunications, including 5G, but also the continuity of the governmental functions, including communications. Uh, looking at the future and to prepare for the future, uh, as you might have heard, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, launched NATO 2030 initiative. And that is what will be also the uh, main focus of the upcoming summit on the 14th of June. Um, the three priorities that we are working on is uh, for NATO to remain, uh, to adopt and remain strong military alliance to become stronger politically and to take a more global approach. So this is also why we work with the partners globally. So the, the resilience agenda in that one will be a very important one. And, and as uh, uh, we can expect that as a result of the summit, there will be uh, both some documents, commitments uh, that we hope allies will, will adopt and accept. So this, uh, this uh, trend of work and this work strand aims to prepare the, the Alliance to manage the complexity and the rapid evolution of our strategic environment. As you all know, and, and we all see it every day, the new threats and challenges are constantly evolving. So these threats change NATO's traditional approach to political consultation and military planning, and they have already changed it. Uh, when, we, when we think about and when we try to formulate it in the past, peace, crisis and conflict were distinct phases. And NATO's deterrent was based on visible demonstration of military, military power and political unity, just as you would expect from military political alliance. The political consultation process was rather slow and deliberative and security was mostly a matter for foreign and defense ministries. Today, however, these categories are no longer viable per se. We know that hostile and disinformation campaigns seek to destabilize our societies, uh, where without a single soldier is crossing a border. Cyber threats affect allies, affect every citizen below the threshold of a kinetic attack. And the hybrid combination of military and non-military tools creates ambiguity that makes consensual decision-making much harder. So in short, today's threats and part are partly invisible, mostly non-kinetic, and by targeting civil society and the private sector, they target the whole of the society. So in case of NATO, they seek to derail efforts to build up a coherent military defense. Ultimately, uh, when we think about it, our collective resilience against these hybrid threats contributes to the raison d'etre of deterrence and defense by reducing the gains an adversary may stand to make. And that is why we need the whole of society approach to strengthening resilience by all stakeholders, be it government, institutions, civil and military, 
private sector, civil society, media, academia, literally the whole of society. Now, against that background of why resilience is such a, such a prominent uh, subject, that is also one of the responses on the most efficient ways of countering uh, all hybrid threats, including hostile information and disinformation. It is a global challenge for all democratic societies. And uh, as, as uh, Goran said, for NATO or for all democratic societies, this challenge is not a new phenomenon. And, and uh, for in the case of NATO, we have uh, been the target of subversion and propaganda and disinformation since its inception. In recent uh, decades, however, the technology has enabled hostile information activities, including disinformation, to increase so exponentially in scale, speed and sophistication as never before. Thus, we do recognize that we live in an increasingly competitive information environment where no one has dominance. So to, to in this complex environment, there's clearly no one answer, but a set of complex actions. So NATO's approach is what we call the, the understand and act engage model. What is to understand? We try to understand the information environment. It includes tracking, it includes assessing information relevant to NATO's mission. It involves extensive audience research. Uh, it it uh, involves investing in very advanced data tools, media monitoring and, and uh, several other things. That provides the awareness and the agility in, in our understanding to enable us to act and engage. And, and it's important to do that proactively, not only reactively. So to proactively engage with our audiences, be it our publics, partners or adversaries, uh, we use a full spectrum of means. We use media, digital communications, face-to-face -face engagements, uh, long-term support programs. Uh, we take care of our communities, partners, and, and uh, indeed be it in the private sector uh, or, or uh, non-governmental and academic sector, we invest in relationships. We also clearly, uh, as NATO, uh, have decided to invest in the strategic communication capability. And, and you can read more what NATO understands is that it's a, it's a set of complex actions to support the policy aims of, of NATO. Uh, so we have invested significantly in people, uh, in, in knowledge and training, in skills, but also in technology. In that respect, the advance of EDTs or emerging disruptive technologies for us is a challenge, but also an opportunity. And here, partnership with the private sector plays a very important role. We also invest uh, both as the alliance, but also especially as allies and as a, as a, a whole democratic West uh, in one of the most effective and efficient responses, media literacy. Uh, partnership and, and journalist uh, uh, community uh, partnership. We uh, invest in research on impact of disinformation, and that increases the overall awareness awareness in our societies. Uh, again, in this respect, governments are not necessarily the most uh, efficient communicators. As wider we spread the knowledge, as more understanding there is in the society as more every citizen understands uh, the, the challenge and the uh, realities that we live in, as more hope there is and, and uh, ability to respond. 
We also support uh, NGO think tanks, uh, academic institutions, uh, independent media, uh, non-for-profit private institutions. Uh, again, both to learn from them, uh, to understand, uh, but also to make sure that our story is heard and that NATO, both NATO's brand, but also what NATO does is clearly known to our audiences, to our partners, but also to our adversaries. One important aspect is the regulation, and there are quite a number of developments, and I know Australia is discussing it, and New Zealand is discussing it, but also other partners. Um, in NATO's case, uh, uh, we rely on the allies and the institutions such as the EU, whose remit that is. In NATO, we provide a platform for discussion and uh, consultations and coordinations where allies uh, and our partners can exchange information, uh, advance knowledge, coordinate action. But uh, in, in this uh, field, we wouldn't expect NATO to be uh, issuing some standardization or regulation. It's around the political sort of commitment. These all are long-term commitments and they should be carried out in parallel with short-term countermeasures. And there is again an interesting uh, development uh, when we look at the variety of like-minded actors. So of course we all choose when we debunk or, or uh, counter particular narratives uh, to make sure that we don't amplify and don't give oxygen to our, our adversaries. We also expose uh, uh, disinformation, uh, but we also impose costs, including through attribution, if warranted. So this dual track model of understanding engage uh, act is indeed reinforced by strong coordination. And that is one of the cornerstones of our work. So NATO continues to consult closely with our partners, such as Australia, EU, colleagues, UN, uh, others. Uh, we regularly exchange insights. We are our political, military, diplomatic and staff channels uh, with our partners. But we also uh, have Australia, for example, on a very operational calls. Uh, we have bi-weekly calls with like-minded countries and organizations across the world, uh, such as Australia, G7, uh, EU and others. Uh, I think I will conclude here and I look forward to the discussion and just to sort of summarize, uh, in our view, everyone, everyone, every citizen in our societies is playing a role and every institution does, be it government, the private sector, academia, civil society, media, other groups. And it is important that they are aware and able to understand and, and respond as credible sources, as uh, media liter literates, as engaged citizens, and as uh, our overall uh, sort of heart and, and brain of democratic society. So keeping NATO strong militarily is essential to our security, and I would say global security. However, our strong militaries must be able to rely on resilient societies. And without any exaggeration, resili resilient society is our first line of defense. So it is crucial to NATO's mission of keeping one billion citizens safe. With this, I thank you, and uh, I look forward to our discussion. 
That was excellent and a very comprehensive overview. And I know that I have a lot of uh, follow-up questions uh, and I've seen some appearing in the Q&A box, so you can all uh, pose the questions there. But uh, before we start addressing those, Dr. Hunt, the floor is all yours. Thank you so much, Karana, uh, for the invitation. I'm going to keep my remarks brief so that we can attend to some of the Q&A that's already coming in. Uh, so I wanted to start with a discussion about some of the different vocabulary we see around this phenomenon. You, are, you might remember that post-truth was the year, uh, the word of the year in 2016, uh, recognizing this growing public sentiment that facts are no longer persuasive. Uh, the truth is malleable. It's subject to personal belief rather than evidence. And with COVID-19, we've seen, we've seen the deadly consequences, essentially, uh, of the post-truth age come to fruition. We've also seen uh, the resurgence of active measures, right? This is uh, Russian, um, old school Russian tactics to undermine the confidence of citizens in people who proffer facts in the press, uh, in the academy. Uh, to separate them from those sources of, of facts and confidence and to undermine their trust in democratic institutions as a result. So active measures, post-truth, disinformation, misinformation, and of course, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we see uh, the resurgence of conspiracy theories. Uh, now, conspiracy theories are, are a whole nother kettle of fish, um, right? So misinformation is information that's inaccurate, but not purposely so. So we would think that solutions for misinformation are different. If we can correct that miscomprehension, mis, uh, then that problem is solved. Disinformation is purposeful. It's purposefully inaccurate. It normally has a political or economic or financial motivation. So it's very difficult to debunk, fact check, and persuade. Conspiracy theories occupy this gray zone where people fervently believe them, but they still don't rise to the level of evidence uh, that we would require from facts. And I'm glad that, uh, that Simon mentioned earlier about the Shangri-La Dialogue, because I remember uh, the, um, the Deputy Secretary General of NATO, Rose Gottemeyer, talking about how alternative facts are a threat to the alliance. And here again, we see the same vocabulary. Alternative facts, post-truth, misinformation, disinformation. There are many manifestations and there are many consequences. I would note that there are uh, law enforcement in multiple countries that have declared things like conspiracy theory communities a domestic terror threat for some of the violence that they've used as rationales in enacting some of these conspiracy theories. So I think that this threat only grows. It, of course, predates COVID, but we've seen some of those consequences made vividly clear. Um, COVID-19 conspiracy theories, I'm sure we've all heard them, anything from 5G, uh, to Bill Gates, and these are a global phenomenon. We saw UK citizens attacking 5G towers and then attacking the engineers that were sent to repair them. We saw chance of arrest Bill Gates in Melbourne, Australia, as well as, of course, the well-documented uh, anti-lockdown protest in the United States. And so I think while COVID-19 has brought the very real and tangible consequences of disinformation at the fore, we're also going to continue to see the erosion of, of robust democratic debate as a result of this pollution of our information commons and the usual suspects, uh, as mentioned. So I want to get straight to solutions and what we can do, and I know that's part of the Q&A. So I will turn back over to Garana so we can move on to the next portion. 
Great, thank you uh, for making the, the job uh, much easier, Jen, and I'll, I'll go to Jen. Jen and I go way back, so uh, referring to her as Dr. Hunt is a bit odd for me, given that <laughs> we've known each other for uh, nearly 10 years, um, but uh, this is not to say that, uh, or in any way signal uh, the, the lack of respect for the great scholarship uh, that, he, that she has been producing. Um, look, I want to uh, go back to this, I mean, the question, and, and I'll be a bit academic here, maybe in, in a tad bit boring, but the question of this ontology, right? What it is that we study, right? The, the idea of disinformation, and we throw around these um, uh, terms like disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, there are all these different variants. And this brings me to the, the kind of question of, um, you know, the, the perpetrators, right? Because sometimes this is very much an intended act, right? Other times, not so much, right? In some societies, and Ambassador Raje alluded to this, that there are different uh, member states that have different sort of ideas as to, you know, regulating freedom of speech or the, uh, the, the tech industry and so on. So in, in that way, um, can we, I mean, uh, can we start getting to some sort of consensus or is this uh, an understanding that obviously NATO can only be a platform in that sense, it's not necessarily tasked to, to solve all these problems, but um, to what extent is uh, this whole attempt to uh, uh, battle uh, disinformation, and I'll be a bit provocative, a bit of a futile attempt when we have such a difference in terms of cultural understanding of uh, what constitutes freedom of speech? How should you know, uh, the, the big tech industry be regulated and, and so on? Um, and I'll, I'll let uh, either, either one of you uh, uh, try to grapple with this sausage of a question. <laughs> That's, yeah, you just put, put it out there, you know, basically. <laughs> Let's talk about everything. <laughs> the, uh, of course, we have to f very much narrow it down. You know, NATO is a multilateral international organization that is based on values. And very clearly, you know, the treaty, the Washington Treaty, provides these values, which is the liberty, the, it's established, the organization established on the basis of the of respect for the values in the UN Charter on the basis of respect for rule of law, individual liberty. And that is, that is what we protect. And that is one, one billion citizens that is there for us. Within that, of course, we are all different. Um, however, we are bound by this democratic ideal and, and that is uh, why we are speaking currently about the wider democratic West. And that's why we have partners such as Australia and, and Japan or, or South Korea or New Zealand or other countries. Because uh, that is the way how we live, how our democratic institutions function and how we want to protect them. Uh, again, this is a different world, uh, the technology has changed it and it's our obligation as countries, as governments, but also as a part of it, the private sector that has been so successful in our societies to protect the way we function, pr to protect our institutions that have enabled the success to us. And we are not alone. Again, different organizations have different remits. Uh, EU is, is discussing its way. EU is uh, very similarly like us today, thinking what are the definitions? Uh, what are we talking about? What are we trying to promote? What are we trying to regulate? 
And in that respect, I think the, the thinking, be it in the UNESCO's Broadband Commission's report or be it in other uh, institutions and organizations, there is a clear understanding on what are the hostile informational activities, uh, what is the disinformation, and what is the misinformation. And it's very much around the intent. So the answer, that's why the answer is very clear, is that we have to be able to understand what is meant to harm us, where overall these external attacks uh, come from, and what is then internally in our countries taken on and, you know, where it develops and is, is sort of uh, amalgamated by, by local actors out of ignorance or out of, of uh, just uh, mistaken belief. And that is the freedom of speech. And there again, uh, indeed, we are democracies and there is a choice, luckily, to believe and to choose our information sources. But Overall, there has to be an understanding uh, that uh, there are external forces that are indeed trying to undermine us and we have the obligation towards our citizens and our societies all together to do uh, what we can. Thank you. Jen. Uh, there's a saying in the United States that the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. Uh, so I would say that all of those rights come with responsibilities to protect the democratic function of the state. And the information systems are, are, are commons now through which democratic discourse takes, pay, takes place. Um, I note that actually today in a State of the Union address, President Biden uh, used the phrase, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. So this is another one of those examples of the responsibilities that come along with rights in, in the balance between speech and protection. So I would say this is definitely a com complex issue, but where it becomes very clear is when there are external actors seeking to pollute those information commons. For instance, I was just reading uh, in the Journal of American Public Health about uh, Russian bots undermining the vaccine discourse as early as 2014. Um, infusing skepticism into the debate, undermining trust, like we said, in experts, in institutions like the World Health Organization, like doctors and physicians. So I think that is clearly a malevolent uh, intention and thus democracies, democracies and groups of democracies have every right to protect themselves against that. Great. Uh, we are getting a lot of questions here. So um, some have to do with uh, just who those actors that might be engaging in these campaigns are and where they might be located. So I might merge a couple of, of questions here. One from our uh, senior fellow, uh, former uh, Australian Senator Stephen Loosley, who uh, is asking whether a particular countries such as Russia have been potentially most effective and potent in disinformation campaigns. And then um, part of this broader question on who the perpetrators might be, what to do uh, in uh, cases where maybe such uh, sort of threats might be emanating from some of the member states or partner states within NATO or groups within those states? Um, Ambassador Brajet. Right. Um, again, there have always been, since NATO was founded, the, the campaigns to undermine NATO. There is always this, you know, uh, sort of subversive nature of actions. So, 
it used to be uh, methods used to be uh, more straightforward. Our realities in our countries used to also be uh, different. You know, there was one main public broadcaster and a few other uh, media out there. Now everybody is a broadcaster and everybody uh, can live in an entirely different information bubble. And uh, we have to understand as governments, again, as responsible institutions, that this reality is going to continue. It's not going to change. We're not going to go back to the past. So our interest and our work should be in making sure that there are sufficiently uh, credible sources, both of information, of communication, be it at the national, at the local levels, at the, at the private sector levels, or, or academic and elsewhere, and that there is that overall base of our societies, our citizens, that understand that these processes are happening, right? But also that they understand that this is uh, also their role to be part of the response. And it's their responsibility to make choices that are responsible. We, when we make our choices of buying a car or of uh, crossing uh, the river when the ice is melting, we do make responsible choices for most of the time, or we face consequences. The same uh, is an overall interest in our societies uh, that, that our citizens should be empowered with, with understanding and with skills and also with instruments to be able to select and makes these responsible choices, uh, be it the sources of information, be it uh, amplifying uh, certain types of information or, or uh, looking for sensations. Um, Jen, did you have a thought or? Sure, just a couple of, uh, there are some excellent reports that have come out in the last year about this. Um, there is a European Commission report on COVID-19 disinformation from external actors focusing on Beijing and Moscow. There's also a State Department report called Pillars of Disinformation that specifically follows Russia's efforts to uh, insert disinformation through the American media system, right? Not through social media, but actually being laundered through more credible sources. So those are excellent starting points to see some of the tactics on the ground that are being used by some of these actors. My personal opinion is that Russia is the best at it, but these tools are available to anyone. Right, so disinformation is if, if I may yeah. add, indeed, indeed, we have seen quite a lot of reports post-factum analyzing what, what are the trends and how it has been done. When it's actually happening, it's a, it's a different situation. You need to really see the narratives. And as we saw just recently with Russia's uh, campaign uh, at, the, at the Ukrainian borders, uh, all the troop movements, all the equipment uh, movements were accompanied by pretty hostile narratives, anti-Ukrainian narratives, uh, landing within Russian information space, but also a very strong anti-NATO narrative that, that Russia was uh, constantly using. So in that respect, uh, this information and these hostile information activities don't live uh, by themselves. They always, they always are part of a wider uh, type of action. And as, as Professor Hansen, uh, indeed, uh, Russia uh, has tried, and again, we have seen quite a number of reports, but also lately China, to act uh, uh, pretty straightforwardly within our information space, Western Europe or global West information space, let's put it that way. 
and, and the tactics and the skills might differ, but it's just the reality that is, that is there. So on that note of seizing the narratives, and there, there are some questions as well that we are receiving, you would be uh, uh, probably pleased to see Ambassador Braja, there is even a, a Latvian US, uh, University of Sydney former student of mine, actually Rebecca Retain, who asked about uh, maybe uh, on that note of seizing narratives and what role maybe social media platforms would play and and the fact that we may be not living in the same sort of reality so to speak where the disinformation uh, might be sought so um what what to do about that there is certainly a role for um education right and, and kind of equipping citizens with those tools but that takes generations right it's going to take a while um, how do you deal with something that is as imminent, as you said, as a Russian campaign uh, that, that has to do with uh, potentially an, an attack uh, on Ukraine or uh, something that uh, really is playing out in real time? Again, there is no one answer to all this. Eh? There, is, there is a set of, of complex actions. So from one hand, you need, within our countries, we do need a strong and viable media. Uh, sphere. And again, models differ in different countries. Social media platforms have changed it uh, significantly. We have seen reports where, where independent media and the smaller media outfits uh, in regions are disappearing. That is, um, that is a serious issue. So uh, again, responses are different. Australia is, is choosing one uh, model, you know, there are different discussions in the UK, in the US, uh, around the antitrust issues. Um, there is no one recipe fits all. So a viable media scene as, as really uh, competent, quality, independent uh, media sources, uh, be it on investigative side, be it on, on the operational side, on, on topical news, so on and so forth. Uh, governments and public institutions, uh, be it military or political institutions, that are uh, operating on fact-based information that are truthful, that are credible and, and uh, of course modern, contemporary, to make sure that our citizens can trust that there is this trustful relationship uh, between societies and the institutions. Uh, we need viable academic uh, uh, scene that does proper research, again, on more systemic basis, on, on really seeing the trends and changes and, and possibly forecasting what should be done and advised. Uh, we need peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, uh, be journalist-to-journalist training or exchange of information um, and, and understanding. Um, and uh, we just, uh, I think, overall need to understand that these are the democratic values. This is our strength. And, you know, question everything. I don't subscribe to it. We have our values. We believe and we really have to make sure that our children and our societies understand this is our strength. So the private sector. Indeed, uh, I think they have also learned quite a lot and we saw the reactions after, after the Capitol Hill uh, developments uh, that the private sector has taken more active role, whether that's the only right role, not for me to say, but they are part of the solution. 
they change the media spheres, they change our information sphere, but they have to be part of the solution, how it's addressed. I'm glad to hear that you mentioned that we need more academic research. I think uh, Jen can definitely help on that front. Um, Jen, do you have any, um, any insights in, into, into that, the, the whole kind of question again of, of echo chambers and, and uh, sort of uh, uh, social media bubbles that uh, we tend to occupy uh, and who plays what role? Sure. So uh, Herb Lynn, a cybersecurity expert, has a great way to look at this. He refers to this as cyber-enabled information operations. And because he comes from a traditional cybersecurity uh, background, he compares them with when you're dealing with, uh, you know, technical intrusions, the, the um, people try to exploit those loopholes, the technical flaws in the system, getting access into the system, exfiltrating data from the system. But when we're talking about social media, these campaigns are actually harnessing the virtues of that system, not the flaws, the openness, the inclusion, the virality, that's all built into the recipe. And I think the Capitol Hill insurrection is a great example of where the online environment hits real life. So you saw voter fraud being the number one narrative pushed by Russian operatives in the 2016 presidential election. This is documented in about five volumes from the Republican-chaired U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee. So those reports are available online. So voter fraud was the number one narrative pushed um, according to the indictments and the reports. And you saw that building over four years. And thus, when Trump activated that message to his followers and then directed them to, from his rally to uh, Capitol Hill, just down the street, um, people responded with force, with violence, as conspiracy theory um, would, would dictate, right? So I, I think that we tend to think of these online environments as being their own reality, but that reality can definitely hit our own. They have deadly consequences on the ground. The other point I would make is that while the origin of some of these conspiracy theories, disinformation and information operations might start online, where they really get resonance is when it is laundered through traditional media. So Fox News, for instance, in the United States was the number one purveyor of disinformation about COVID-19, for instance. They tracked different uh, programs that were aired um, saying this is a hoax, um, you have nothing to worry about, using cell phone data and viewing statistics that the communities that watched those programs, those shows in prime time, chose not to take measures to protect themselves and their community, and thus they had earlier spikes. So you see that this does have very real ramifications. Sometimes uh, it takes a few years to percolate, but those narratives are very powerful and they can have real world violent consequences. That's a great point on um, the life cycle of disinformation, Jen, and that kind of connection between social and, and traditional media. And uh, you've mentioned a lot of reports and studies. There was one also by the EU uh, not that long ago that, that uh, dealt with that, the impact as well that disinformation had on, on uh, rule of law um, in, EU, uh, in the EU and in member states. Um, look, we are coming to the last five or six minutes of, of our uh, 
time here. So I can't go without actually asking for some uh, of potentially policy prescriptions or lessons learned where we actually have heard from or seen um, particular countries' efforts or maybe, you know, um, at levels that are more local, municipal, there were some questions that came uh, in, in um, the lead up to our seminar around this or maybe the role that potentially artificial intelligence could play or we've seen it play and, and so on. So that's one uh, big question that I first want to address and then uh, we obviously can't uh, go without maybe learning from from each other, what Australia can learn from NATO and, and what uh, NATO can learn from Australia. So uh, we uh, had some questions uh, as well pointing in, in that direction from uh, some uh, uh, colleagues of ours who, who might be also known to Ambassador Braje, uh, Leon Hartwell from SIPA, for instance. Uh, so, and, and Beck Dawson, Louise Collins, they were posing some of these questions. Um, so uh, shall you take it away? Uh, Ambassador Braje for, for uh, the, the kind of um, last uh, or, or penultimate uh, uh, remarks there. Thank you very much and hi to all friends. It's great to know that uh, they are there. One day we will all meet again. The, um, I think the essential part is really uh, to understand that governments have to take it serious. So we need to invest in the capability. You know, NATO is a political military alliance again. So we have a particular mission uh, it involves both the political and civilian and military sides. But again, it's about our societies. They have to be part of our defense. So when we think about it, the governments have to take it serious. And what I mean is that we do need to invest the strategic communications capability. It is the same type of capability when we think uh, that, okay, we need to invest in ships or you need to invest in satellites to understand what is happening, to be able to communicate. We need to invest in planes, you know, to have that uh, sort of defense capability. But we also need to invest in STRATCOM capability and, and uh, that involves both uh, this understand function to understand what our audiences really uh, know, think and, and what resonates, but also in this proactive communications capability to have people knowledge, skills, and to use the most advanced uh, tools, data tools uh, uh, for that. We have to get our story to our audiences out first. We have to connect to our citizens and, and be able to, to empower them and tell them our story, but also to our partners and also to our adversaries. Our potential adversaries need to know that NATO or Australia or others are ready to deter and defend. And we are ready to, all to do that for all threats. We are ready. So this is, this is what our adversaries need to understand. Yes, just to add, so the uh, NATO accredited Cyber Center of Excellence in Tallinn, Estonia did some excellent work on cyber enabled disinformation. It was actually the venue for that talk by Herb Lynn that I just referenced. They have a toolkit that's available online where they have cases of foreign interference that are below the threshold of war, including cyber enabled disinformation and potential actions that allies in concert can work together on. So I'd highly recommend that as a resource if you're looking for practical examples of what NATO and NATO accredited institutions are working on this, both scholars and practitioners together. Um, 
on the very last note, I would note that there are things that we as individuals can do. And a lot of that involves starting with the truth, always refocus and prioritize the truthful, accurate frame. For instance, I see lots of members of United States Congress repeatedly saying, of course, the election wasn't stolen. Of course, the election wasn't stolen. And what people remember are those powerful nouns and verbs, election stolen. And that is what is recalled. And the more familiar it is, the more it sounds like truth. So I would encourage everyone to rephrase and refocus on the truth, right? The legitimate, the election was legitimate. Joe Biden won the election, right? So that's what you recall. So repeat what you want people to remember. Then you seem to have read my script here to get to the last question, which was precisely that. So you answered it. Uh, but then I'm going to, to uh, give the honor to Ambassador Braja to, to uh, actually give her two cents maybe for, for our parting. What is it that, as you said in your opening remarks, where every citizen matters, right? This is not something that solely governments can do, right? Or uh, particular parts of, of the uh, uh, industry or, or the, the civil society. What is it that each of us, whether we are in Australia or in Belgium or in Italy or anywhere else around the world, could do uh, in this effort to build the uh, resilience of societies that we live in? Uh, again, NATO, NATO did uh, our own report on uh, approach to disinformation. So we also have developed these do's and don'ts uh, from, you know, check your biases and don't amplify if you're not sure, you know, check your facts, so on and so forth. I think the most essential thing is, is really to keep mind focused, as Jennifer just said, that check the facts, check the sources before starting to, to amplify this information, really make sure that you know that you are not doing that. And I think that is so important, be it, be it in our conversations, be it in our social media. As citizens, we play a role. And as active citizens, uh, we are all, we all have different identities. We are part of non-governmental organizations or charity organizations or sports clubs or elsewhere. Um, I invite people really to, to make sure that their pals and their colleagues uh, don't fall for, for the trap of spreading disinformation uh, or misinformation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So mindfulness, not in just the, the things that you do and the way that you might be interacting with the world, but also the way that you uh, digest information, seek information, process it, and, and hopefully uh, we'll get there sometime um, sooner rather than later. Um, so it's been a, a great pleasure. Thank you again, Ambassador Braje. Thank you again, Jen, uh, for joining us in, in kicking off really this series of conversations that I hope we'll be having uh, for the, the remainder of the year. Uh, and now I'm, I'm going to wrap up by inviting all of you and thank you as well to all of the audience for posing all the questions. Uh, they've been coming in and I hope that at least we've been able to touch on uh, those things that you were most interested about. I tried to address as many as I could in the, in the space that uh, we had. Um, but for now, uh, I would also like to invite you to join the United States Studies Center uh, in some of the upcoming events. And actually one is coming up 
just uh, in a couple of uh, uh, days, uh, less than a week uh, now. So uh, there will be a conversation featuring political global translations editor Ryan Heath, University of Queensland Chair in Sustainable Energy Future, uh, Professor Peter Ashworth and our U.S. Study Center CEO, Professor Simon Jackman, who will all be discussing the implications for Australia under the pressure of an ever climate conscientious United States and the global climate challenges ahead of us. So hopefully you will be able to join us. Uh, you'll be able to access the recording to this web webinar very uh, soon. And again, I hope to see you at some of the other uh, USSC NATO expert talk series. Uh, thank you again. Thank you to the panelists and thank you to the audience.